Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, the African Union high-level panel on Libya meets in Congo. Headsmen kill at least 10 people in Nigeria's Plateau State and hundreds of women march in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura. In economics news, Tanzania plans to nationalize seize diamonds and in sports news, South African Football Association to hold emergency meeting. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. Angola's main opposition party's appeals to the Constitutional Court to annul the results of last month's election, which gave a landslide victory to the ruling MPLA. UNITA agreed that the electoral process failed to comply with the law when presenting the appeal late on Friday. The move comes after the National Electoral Commission published final results on Wednesday, giving MPL a 61% of the vote and Junita 27. The meeting of the African Union High-Level Committee on Libya's ended in Congo-Brazzaville with five African leaders hopeful that the Libyan crisis will be resolved. The one-day meeting was called to find a lasting solution to the raging political conflict in the North African country. Five African presidents and representatives from the United Nations and the Arab League of Nations attended the meeting. Reading out a three-page communique, Congolese foreign Affairs Minister Jean-Claude Gagasso said they would need the support of the international community to help Libya overcome its challenges. Taking into account the urgent aspect of the holding of the Conference of National Reconstruction, it's important to mobilize the international support in favor of the efforts of the African Union. In this respect, the members of the high-level committee request the summons in due time of the meeting of a quartet on Libya. South Africa's ruling ANC's uh, executive member, Becky Tele, says the swearing-in of former African Union Commission Chairperson Nkosazana Tlamini Zuma's MP this week is part of a plan to remove Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa. He says a reported cabinet reshuffle will result in chaos and cause the ANC elective conference to be postponed. It's rumored that Lamini Zuma's earmarked for a position in cabinet. Kaila says ANC members should stand up to defend the party. I'm told that the selling in of new members in parliament is a part to reshuffle the cabinet and replace the deputy president with the party so that the party is worrying is that this current political feeling is 
Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari's appealed for calm and an end to communal violence. Buhari's appeal comes after police said armed herdsmen killed 19 people in the central state of Plateau. Fulani herdsmen attacked Ancha village in the Basa local government area of Plateau state in the early hours of Friday. It's believed to be a reprisal attack after a boy from the herding community was killed, fighting between semi-nomadic cattle herders and more settled communities over land use claims hundreds of lives a year in Nigeria's central and northern states. And finally, about 600 people have died in a cholera epidemic that's sweeping across the Democratic Republic of Congo. The World Health Organization, WHO, says the epidemic has hit at least 10 cities, including the capital, Kinshasa. It comes as more than 1 million people have been displaced by violence in the Kasai region. The WHO says health officials have recorded more than 24,000 cases of the disease. It has sent a team of experts to the DRC in an effort to contain cholera. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Monday, September the 11th, the 254th day of 2017, with 111 days left in the year. The African Union High-Level Committee has welcomed the interest shown by the Libyan people to resolve the current political conflict in their country. The meeting of the six-member panel that includes South Africa's President Jacob Zuma ended in Congo, Brazzaville on Saturday night. The one-day meeting was called to find lasting solutions to the Libyan crisis. War has been raging in that country since the fall of Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi six years ago. But the AU panel says parties to the conflict are now committed to finding peace. Debo Mokobo reports. After a marathon meeting on the Libyan crisis, the AU High-Level Committee on Libya, led by five presidents, says peace is on the horizon in the North African country. For the first time in six years, warring parties in the Libyan crisis that include the House of Representatives and the High State Council converged under one roof to sort out their differences. And President Jacob Zuma, who's part of the negotiating team, commended Libyans, insisting that an inclusive political dialogue amongst them is the only viable means to achieve durable peace in that country. What we take is the fact that all parties from Libya, for the first time, uh, they were converging in their views about the need to resolve their matter. And I must say there, is, there was a very big consensus in their presentation and the sense of urgency that they want indeed this matter to be resolved. I think it was the first time in my experience that we had this kind of an understanding wherein they could be under one roof and have the discussion and present the desire that they would want this matter to be resolved. This has been a step forward. Speaking through an interpreter, chairperson of the AU high-level committee and Congolese president Denis Asongweso said the solution to the Libyan crisis rests on Libyans themselves. The presence for the first time in the same venue of the representatives of the main components of the Libyan crisis. The members of the dialogue committee is bringing an additional motivation to our committee and is a sign of hope for everybody. 
I say and repeat it again with strength, the achievement of our efforts depend largely of the involvement and the determination of the Libyans themselves. And peace efforts in Libya got a blessing from the United Nations. The UN representative to Libya, Ghassan Salani, says they will work with the AU to ensure lasting peace and stability in the North African country. Salani says the 72nd session of the UN General Assembly starting in New York in a fortnight will come up with a strategy for peace in Libya. This meeting is very important and positive stage that is of the high-level committee on Libya and also on margins of the United Nations General Assembly during which the UN Secretary General will propose a strategy for a solution to the Libyan crisis and I hope he will have your support for it to be implemented like we have come into Brazzaville with the conviction that it is important that we move into the path of of peace and stability. And at the end, the three-page communique painted a positive picture to the Libyan crisis, as Congolese Foreign Affairs Minister John Claude Gagoso elaborates. The members of the committee commended themselves for the good proceedings of the dialogue committee during the summit of Brazzaville. The member of the committee urged them to finalize and explore ways and means for the success for the Inter-Libyan Forum of National Reconciliation expected in Addis Ababa in December 2017. With the hope of peace now in the offing in Tripoli, the AU High-Level Committee now says there is an urgent need to convene the National Reconciliation Conference in Libya to help take the country to lasting peace and stability. I am Tebumokobo Congo in Brazzaville. It's 8.10 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The detention of migrants and refugees in Libya is rotten to the core. It must be named for what it is, a thriving enterprise of kidnapping, torture and extortion. Those are the words of Joanne Liu, the president of medical humanitarian organization MSF, in an open letter to European government leaders this week. The BBC's Ola Gerin has gained access to the largest official detention centre in Libya. There she has heard the harrowing stories from migrants about their attempts to reach Europe and witness the harsh conditions they are being held in. I've just come into the main holding area. It's basically like a large aircraft hangar. It's absolutely packed. There are hundreds of men here, most sitting on the ground, some lying. A lot of them are trying to fan themselves with pieces of cardboard. It's absolutely airless here. There isn't a breath. The men have told us it's so crowded that at night some have to try to sleep standing up. There's no room to lie down. And the door here is locked at night. They have no access to the bathroom. The men here say that conditions are worse than jail. At least in jail, they say, you have your own cell. Uh, my name is Hennessy, 18 years old. I come from South Sudan. Hennessy Manjing fled his home in 2016 after a family dispute led to death threats. He sounds like the London schoolboy he used to be. His father worked in the UK for three years. 
Hennessy hoped to return to Britain by crossing the Mediterranean, but says as soon as he got to Libya, he was kidnapped by an armed gang. So when we was inside the inside the, the, the lorries, the, the trucks, people was jumping off. The time we jumped off, there was a chatman, an old chatman. He was shot, so blood went all over my, 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 my T-shirt. So I thought I was shot as well. I was so scared. And, and the old man who was shot with you, do you think he survived? No, I don't think he survived. I, th- I think he's dead. Hennessy wound up behind bars, initially at another detention centre near the airport in Tripoli. He says it's easy to get a beating from the guards there. If people make noise or if people rush for food, you get bitten. You get bitten. If uh, people want to use the bathroom or if people want to drink water, just make you lie down on your stomach, the whole, the whole gel, and everyone gets about five five. Everyone... Everyone gets beaten. Everyone gets beaten. You just wake up every day scared for your life. Every day. I thought I would die. I thought I would die immediately. I thought I would die. Emmanuel John, another 18-year-old from South Sudan, was also abused by Libyan gangs linked to people traffickers. He was beaten, but what pained him most is what he heard them do to two teenage girls. They entered the second room and they raped the girls. They raped two girls. Yeah. And we couldn't do anything because we don't have anything to defend ourselves with. How old were these girls? How old were they? It was a family. It was a family. And the two girls, I think they could be 15, 19, something like that. It's morning time. And hundreds of men are now lining up in front of me. It's time for them to get their breakfast, but the rations here have been reduced. The authorities say they just don't have the funding to provide properly for the number of men that they have. So in front of me now, men are lining up, most of them barefoot, and all that they are getting is one small loaf of bread, one roll, and some butter. That's it. That's breakfast. With me is Anas Alazabi. He's the supervisor of the detention centre. Anas, when you see what the men are getting for breakfast, how little there is, how do you feel? I'm feeling really bad for them. We have a lot of problems facing us. We have nothing to give for them. So really, I feel sorry for them. So now, actually, few few people they are helping us which they have uh, feeding companies and they are giving us a little bit of food just to manage and do, uh, to deal with the, the migrants. So you're relying on, on donations from Libyan companies? Yes, yes. And what happens if that runs out? Really it's a disaster, I have nothing to say. We need really support from the international community. How desperate are the conditions for them here? The, the centre itself is, is very overcrowded. They are completely desperate here. When they found themselves, the journey, it's end here in the detention center. So they are completely broken. And among the ranks of the broken, there are women and children. We found three-month-old Sola and his young mother, Wasila, in a separate section away from the men. They were at sea when their boat broke down. Police arrested us, she said, 
and since then we have been in five prisons. A moment of celebration as some women at the centre got word they were being sent home to Nigeria. Migrants can be held indefinitely in Libya unless their country takes them back. But Wasila is from Togo, which has no ambassador in Tripoli. She can only dream of being deported, as she used to dream of reaching Europe. And that report by the BBC's Ola Guerin in Libya. Now let's go back in time to today. In 2001, terrorists crashed two hijacked airplanes into the World Trade Center in New York City, bringing down the twin 110-story towers, killing more than 2,700 people. Another hijacked jetliner slams into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., killing at least 189 people. A fourth hijacked plane crashes in rural southern Pennsylvania, killing 44 people aboard. That's today in history in the year 2001. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunye Nzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. The African Union Peace and Security Council and the United Nations Security Council have held a consultative meeting in Ethiopia. This 11th meeting is part of their joint efforts to promote peace and security on the continent. Channel Africa's Koleta Wanjohi reports. The meeting of the two security councils was held at the African Union headquarters in Ethiopia. Issues discussed by the AU Peace and Security Council and the United Nations Security Council include issues in conflict regions of Lake Chad, South Sudan and Somalia. Smile Shergui, the Commissioner for Peace and Security at the African Union, explains further about the meeting. We need to exchange views candidly and how best to consolidate the progress achieved and overcome challenges at hand. Indeed, we cannot relent as the path towards lasting peace and stability requires a long term investment to address the root causes of violence while urging the concerned stakeholders to demonstrate the required resolve and political commitment to overcome their problems. On Somalia, Haile Menkerios, the head of the United Nations Office to the African Union, said there is need for careful strategic transfer of power from the African mission in Somalia to the Somali's national security forces. requires careful planning and close coordination between the Somali authorities, the African Union, the United Nations and other partners. This, the two organizations have agreed to embark on. On South Sudan, Menkerios added that it is unfortunate that leaders in South Sudan have failed to honor the peace agreement they signed in 2015. He says the United Nations welcomes any engagement by the African Union and the IGAD to revitalize the 2015 peace agreement of the South Sudan. But we are concerned about calls for elections next year, 
while elections should take place in due course, they can only be held in a stable security environment, one in which people are not displaced by violence and hunger, and in which they are able to express their political views free from intimidation. Hastening the conduct of elections without these conditions in place risks deepening and extending the conflict. With regard to the conflict in the Lake Chad Basin, the two councils agreed that more effort be put to give more than just a military solution, but rather the need to find root causes of the Boko Haram threat. Koleto Anjohi for Channel Africa Radio in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. State representatives from 17 African countries have reaffirmed their commitment to existing international laws and norms governing the protection of persons and property in times of armed conflict. This at the 17th Annual Regional Seminar on International Humanitarian Law, IHL, held recently in Pretoria, South Africa. The four-day meeting was co-hosted by the South African Department of International Relations and the International Committee of the Red Cross under the theme, the 40th anniversary of the 1977 additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by Sarah Swart, the ICRC's Regional Legal Advisor in Pretoria. Good morning, um, Sarah, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, Sarah, although IHL is uh, important in uh, governing warfare, um, adherence and implementation has been a huge problem in many conflict settings. How exactly was this problem addressed at the seminar? The seminar focused on both issues of implementation of the law governing warfare, but also compliance um, through various panel discussions throughout the week. One of the most interesting sessions for me, actually, was when participants shared ideas of effective and creative and innovative mechanisms for improving the implementation of, of IHL. Um, and we had these discussions from the perspective of a parliamentarian from the Sadiq Parliamentary Forum, uh, from a representative of government, which was Mauritius, and a representative of a National Red Cross Society from Ethiopia. Um, and then on compliance, we had another interesting discussion where we were looking at whether we could turn the annual regional IHL seminar as it is now into something to be better used to promote compliance in the region. And then we also looked at the need for a global mechanism to promote compliance. So quite a few discussions revolving around adherence and implementation. Now, Sarah, you know, there's a whole lot of um, uh, talk shops that take place uh, um, on a regular basis, whether it's on an annual basis or a biannual basis. Now, is this just another talk shop or are there going to be implementations going forward? Well, we certainly hope not. (laughs) I think that one of the creative ways in which we're trying to turn the seminar into more than a talk shop is that on the first afternoon, Every single one of the 18 African governments who attend the seminar voluntarily provides a country report where they update the other participants on what they've done at the national and regional level over the past year. And I think that's really something to be commended. It's something unusual and something that really sets the seminar apart. 
Um, going forward, the seminar did adopt an outcome document, and our aim with these outcome documents is really to have something concrete and tangible, not just, as you say, um, another talk shop or piece of paper that will be forgotten. So this outcome document that was negotiated on Friday, on the final day of the seminar, contains 10 tangible, measurable recommendations for the way forward. Um, and certainly as ITRC, we are going to continue to support states in the implementation of those 10 recommendations. Now, Sarah, we've seen uh, different uh, times in, in different countries, especially on the African region, where um, on the African continent, rather, where there's a lot of, um, you know, conflict or confusion when it yes. comes to international law and each country's laws and constitutions. And there's a lot of um, wrangling that comes into play where there's the political actors and, you know, the international or uh, human rights advocacy um, actors. So in terms of that or with regards to that, how did um, participants deliberate on those particular issues in dealing with them going forward? a very good question. I think one of the things when we come to talk about international humanitarian law, which is the law of war, it's very easy to mix law and politics, of course. And we just have to look at recent decisions and actions made on the African continent to see that there is a close link between politics and this law of war. What we try to do as the ICRC is to point out that IHL um, does not... It doesn't cover why we go to war. It doesn't cover the reasons for a war, whether a war is just or not. IHL is purely there to provide protections and limitations in times of war. Um, So when we're discussing IHL, we do try to steer away from those political discussions. Having said that, of course they came up. Um, We were actually having quite an active discussion on the issue of immunity um, of sitting heads of states, etc., and one of the things that we spoke about was the fact that implementation of IHL at the national level is one thing, but repression of violations of that law is another thing. Now, Sarah, going forward, what ideas uh, were put on the table with regards to um, a dealing with actors who violate um, international humanitarian law? One of the discussions that we had um, during the seminar was the idea that perhaps there needs to be the creation of a global mechanism which allows for states to gather and discuss compliance with the law or lack of compliance um, naturally. Now, this idea is something that is already being negotiated and discussed at the international level. It's a project that's being led by the Swiss government and the ICRC, where governments from across the world are meeting to discuss whether, as state parties to the 1949 Geneva Conventions, they should come together once a year at a meeting of state parties to discuss issues of compliance and lack of compliance. This project is very much still um, in progress. So whether we do find ourselves adopting a a global mechanism is another question, but it's certainly something on the table, and I think it's something that really does need to be supported. Sarah, at the meeting, there was also discussion of um, the recent uh, historic adoption of the UN Treaty banning nuclear weapons. And uh, we've seen a case of um, North Korea currently um, throwing a, a huge spanner of works into the mix with regards to their nuclear program and just disregard of international law and everything um, that's come into play, whether it was sanctions or anything. And um, there's a lot of conflict going on with regards Mm. to that. This treaty, what does this milestone mean for the region? 
Firstly, I think the word milestone is absolutely correct. It is incredible that the world has adopted a nuclear weapons ban treaty. It's it's really an, a huge advance for mankind. And as you've mentioned, there were so many political and other reasons why the, the treaty probably wouldn't be adopted, and yet we succeeded. And I think this really reflects from an African perspective the steps that were already taken on our continent to fight nuclear weapons, the most obvious step being the Pell and Arbor Treaty, which was adopted by African states to declare our continent as a nuclear weapon-free zone. And secondly, this, the adoption of the UN Treaty banning nuclear weapons is really an achievement for those vocal African states who stood strong, who stood together in the negotiations and didn't bow down to outside pressures, and particularly led by Nigeria and South Africa. And I think we should really be proud of that as a continent. And the next step is the important one. The next step is the signing ceremony, where we hope that heads of state who travel to New York for the United Nations General Assembly in September will sign this treaty and start bringing it into operation. And certainly as the ICRC, we're working closely with a number of African states to encourage them to do just that. Now, as an organization at the forefront of promoting respect for um, international humanitarian law, is the ICRC confident that Commitments made by governments will translate into action. We chatted, we touched on this earlier, but it, you know it's very um, important to find out in terms of were the time frames put in place, and uh, you know what sort of time frames um, are going to be worked on as uh, every delegate goes back to their country. Um, is this going to be? Is is the organisation looking at holding this um, summit or conference on an annual basis? Um, you know what's going to happen going forward. Yes. That's a really good question. I think on the one hand, we as the ICRC are very aware that for many African governments who are at peace, the implementation of international humanitarian law will not be a priority, and that's completely understandable when you compare it to priorities such as development and poverty reduction. At the same time, we were once again so grateful to see at the seminar the incredible enthusiasm, passion, and political will that does exist in Africa to ensure that IHL obligations on governments are implemented, um, which is very encouraging for us as the ICRC. This was the 17th annual IHL seminar. It started back in 2000, and I was very um, impressed by a comment made by DERCO, the Department of International Relations and Cooperation, at the closing ceremony. They mentioned that we don't hold a seminar 17 times in a row for nothing. Um, it, it has to. This is a sign, a reflection of the fact that the seminar is making a difference in the governments that are attending it. And so for the ICRC, we are going to continue to support states, and particularly in the implementation of the recommendations that were adopted in the outcome document, as I mentioned. Interestingly, one of those recommendations was full utilization of the media to promote the importance of international humanitarian law. I mean, that's probably particularly interesting for you. Definitely interesting because as we we, we, we also touch on this fact, the fact that there's still a lot of confusion when, in, in terms of international humanitarian law and, yes. uh, you know, the, the um, country's individual um, laws. And then we, you also touched on the issue of um, diplomatic immunity. And here in South Africa, we had an issue of uh, um, a first lady of, of, of uh, one of the African countries who, you know, uh, there was an issue there on diplomatic immunity. So, you know, there's still a lot for um, us as uh, citizens, um, and I'm sure on the whole continent, to understand what international humanitarian law really is and what it entails. Absolutely. I think there's still a lot of confusion between, for example, international humanitarian law and international human rights law. 
which are two complementary bodies of international law, but once you get down to the nitty-gritties, are in fact quite different to each other. So absolutely there's confusion still, there's misunderstanding about the role of international humanitarian law. Um, and I could perhaps just mention that one of the other recommendations that came out of the seminar was to ensure better dissemination of international humanitarian law to the general public, particularly through the use of national Red Cross societies. So here in South Africa, that would be the South African Red Cross Society, who has a role to play in assisting governments to better disseminate what IHL is and when it applies. Sarah, we definitely look forward to that and uh, thank you so much for this update. All the best and uh, I'm sure we'll be getting updates from DERCO, from ICRC um, with regards to um, everything that is being put in place and uh, you know how the media can come into play and in educating every citizen in understanding, as you said, international, humani- international humanitarian law, international human rights law and every different aspect of it. Thank you so much for joining us. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. That was Sarah Swart, Regional Legal Advisor at the International Committee of the Red Cross in Pretoria. It's 8.32 and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Angola's main opposition party appeals to the Constitutional Court to annul the results of last month's election, which gave a landslide victory to the ruling MPLA, arguing the electoral process failed to comply with the law. South Africa's ruling ANC's National Executive Committee member, Becky Kele, says the swearing-in of former AU Commission Chairperson Ngosazana Tlamini Zuma as MP this week is part of a plan to remove Deputy President President Cyril Ramaphosa and about 600 people have died in a cholera epidemic that's sweeping across the Democratic Republic of Congo. Those are the stories making headlines. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 8.34 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's go back in time to today in 2012. Mainly ultra-conservative protesters climbed the walls of the U.S. Embassy in Egypt's capital and bring down the American flag, replacing it with a black Islamic flag to protest a U.S.-produced film attacking the Prophet Muhammad. That's today in history in the year 
we have good news for you. Join us for a new program on Mondays at 9 Central African time. We have Shukumano, the African labor show for you. It takes the place of one-on-one and gives you an African view of the world of labor and unions on our continent. Channel Africa, the African perspective. This is the African Labour Show. It is 8.35 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Now, the International Humanitarian Law Rather, the 17th Annual Regional Seminar on International Humanitarian Law held in Pretoria recently, a four-day meeting which was co-hosted by the South African Department of International Relations and the International Committee of the Red Cross. We earlier spoke to Sarah Swart, who is the Regional Legal Advisor at the International Committee of the Red Cross in Pretoria. Now, do you have an understanding of international humanitarian law and the difference between international human rights law. Send us your response, your views on the differences, or if you have better clarity or a better understanding than a lot of us as citizens on the continent, you can give us feedback or you can ask questions with regards to the discussion that we had with Sarah Swart, who is the Regional Legal Advisor at the ICRC here in South Africa in Pretoria. Tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Email us at info at channelafrica.co.za or WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327 or an SMS on 277-969-57930. Channel Africa from an African perspective. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. A 
At least 20 people were killed and 10 others injured on Friday in an attack by gunmen suspected to be Fulani headsmen in Ancha village in Nigeria's Plateau state. The attack, which has been condemned by the Nigerian president, is one of the numerous violent incidents in which innocent people have been killed by suspected Fulani headsmen across Nigeria. Channel Africa's Collins Atohengbe reports from Lagos. The people were not only taken by surprise, but were unable to save themselves because they already retired to bed and were soundly asleep at the time the headsmen invaded their village, shooting indiscriminately at children and women right on their bed. Those who were able to escape took refuge in mosques and bushes around, returning home to meet that their family members who were not lucky enough to escape had either been killed or seriously mutilated with machetes cuts. One of the victims... Monday, Ahmadu, speaking in Hausa, narrated his ordeal in which his wife and two children lost their lives. In the night, while we were sleeping, we started hearing gunshot sounds outside our doors. We do not know who they are, but heard them speaking in Fulani and shouting, Come out, come out. We were sleeping in the room. Then they broke our door and entered the room. While they were forcing their way to enter, I escaped to hide in a hut. I left my wife and two children on the bed. They killed my wife and two children. The feelings among the people of Anche village is that the attack was premeditated in a revenge for the murder of a Fulani teenager, an incident for which the police has arrested and detained five suspects while investigation to determine the actual culprits is ongoing. Sunday Abdu, a member of the Ringwe community, the tribe and people who inhabit the affected village, says if the attack is a reprisal, that would be very unfortunate because the victims are all peace-loving people. Irigwe man is known for peace and we condemned what happened last week totally. Nobody is in support of what happened last week. It's it's like a, an occultic thing and if that thing that happened today is taken for a revenge, then it's, un, it's unfortunate. I don't believe we can live like this. Nigeria is a country of law and order. In a reaction to the turn of events, the Plateau State Commissioner for Police, Peter Ogunyawu, felt disappointed that there was an attack over an incident for which suspect have been arrested and detained. He gave assurance that those who carried out the weekend attack would be caught and brought to book. I want to assure the community that those who have perpetrated this crime will be fished out and will be prosecuted. And for the first offense, that's the alleged killing of the other Fulani boy, we have five suspects at hand. So we believe with that, we don't expect that anybody should have taken law into his hand because already five people have been arrested in respect of that one. And we have no doubt we are going to arrest those who have perpetrated this one. In the light of the continued effort to get to the bottom of this state of attacks by headsmen in Iringwe community. The Plateau State Special Security Task Force Tag Operation Safe Haven has sent out invites to residents of the community for talks and the process was ongoing when the weekend incident occurred. Chenje Dodo, an Iringwe youth leader, explains. We in the leadership with the national body of Iringwe people uh, who are the major inhabitants of this land we are vowed into a promise uh, to take some decisive actions. We were invited to the security outfit in Jaws, that is Operation Self Heaven, alongside other security apparatus. And we are the Fulani community and Iringwe people all promise to walk and fish out the perpetrators. Security patrols to ensure police presence as a way of deterring any attack or even responding promptly to distress call has been one of the major challenges of the Nigerian police. As the Inspector General of Police, Ibrahim Idris, explained, 
the agency will have to beef up its personnel so as to meet the United Nations prescription of the number of policemen required to meet safety level. Police force is operating obviously far below the United Nations ratio of policing personnel to the citizens. What we are trying to do and which we have requested from the government is that we for the now and the next five years to be recruiting 31,000 every year. As the people bury their deads and the injured are receiving treatments in the hospital, the Nigerian president Muhammadu Buhari has expressed outrage at those taking the law into their hands has therefore directed that the perpetrators be fished out without delay. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atohengbi for Channel Africa News. Burundian women marched on Saturday in the capital Bujumbura to denounce the UN Human Rights Commission report accusing government forces and loyalists of committing crimes against humanity. According to the Burundi National Women Forum, reports on Burundi are being drafted to tarnish the image of the country. Bernard Bankokira reports from Bujumbura. These are women militants from various political parties and associations, allies of the ruling party CNDFDD, in a march in the capital Bujumbura to say no to the recent Human Rights Commission report on the situation in Burundi. Addressing the crowd of women and young supporters in the protest, Menedora Nibaruta, chairperson of Burundi National Women Forum, who headed the march, said the report produced on Burundi is biased. For her, Burundian women have not been consulted in drafting the report. Dear fellow women, you are invited to stand up for peace and security to reject anything that might disturb the country. Wrong reports that we don't know where they were drafted. Just a question to you. Have you been consulted in drafting that report? No. Just two or three men outside Burundi sit in a comfortable hotel to fabricate what to say. We would like to ask you, journalists, tell those whites that enough is enough. That Burundian women, in all their differences, are fed up. That Burundian women will never and ever accept your divisions. On his side, Burundi Attorney General says he is astonished to hear the commission saying Burundi has neither the will nor the capacity to conduct genuine investigations or prosecutions of these violations. For him, Burundi is fully equipped to investigate and prosecute all crimes. The chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court opened a preliminary examination despite a position of Burundi which never relented to show her that it was not necessary. For this purpose, Burundi shared all information with her in connection with the alleged crimes committed since April 2015, as well as measures taken to reprimand them. It is therefore surprising to hear the commission saying that Burundi has neither the will nor the capacity to conduct genuine investigations or prosecutions of these violations. We wish to emphasize that Burundi has institutions and related laws to investigate and prosecute perpetrators, having already understood that it is the responsibility of the state to promote and protect human rights, the institutions. And that report by Bernard Bankukira from Bujumbura. It's 8.46 and our economics update up next with Tabisa Luhoku. Thanks, Lulu.
Tanzania plans to nationalize diamonds whose value it put at 29.5 million US dollars belonging to a mine majority owned by London-listed PetroDiamonds. This after it accused the miner of under-declaring its mineral exports. The diamonds were seized at the main airport in Tanzania's commercial capital, Dar es Salaam, on August the 31st, as they were being exported by William Diamonds Limited. President Robert Mugabe says Zimbabwe's economy hobbled by foreign currency shortages and a widening budget is slowly rebounding. Mugabe says that the ruling ZANU-PF's Soviet-style Central Committee says that the former British colony was on the way to regaining its status as a regional breadbasket. Zimbabwe generates half of its exports earnings from mining, particularly gold and platinum, but diamond output fell to 96 1,000 carats last year from 3.5 million the year before. The Swaziland National Maize Corporation has vowed to guarantee food security. The corporation's marketing and communications manager, Nokwanda Lamine Masuku, says that the corporation is, in, is within its mandate to address food security issues. She is optimistic that this can be achieved with the help of other trading partners. Mauritius is to provide foreign currency support to its sugar and other exports-oriented sectors to cushion them against the impact of a strong rupee currency. Businesses have been calling on policymakers to intervene over recent weeks after export revenues fell 8%. Pravin Takuma Jacknorth, who is both the Prime Minister and Finance Minister, told business executives on Friday that the government would introduce an exchange rate support scheme. Kenya will sell two-year and ten-year treasury bonds worth a total two ninety-two million U.S. dollars this month. The bank says it will receive bids for the bonds until September the nineteenth and auction the two bonds on September the twentieth. The two-year bond will have a market determination coupon. The U.S. dollar trades at twelve nine zero in South Africa. It's at nine eight nine in Botswana and at nine one three in Zambia. Zero point seven five to the British pound and zero point eight three to the euro. Gold is trading at one thousand three four seven dollars. Platinum one thousand ten dollars an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at five four dollars two one cents a barrel. I'm Tabi Solohoko for Channel Africa. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we begin with football news. South African Football Association, SAFA, is expected to convene an emergency meeting today to discuss FIFA's decision to order a replay between Bafana Bafana and Senegal. Late on Saturday, Safa's President Denis Jordan issued a statement saying, ever since Safa received the devastating news from the FIFA World Cup Qualifiers Bureau that the Bafana Bafana match played against Senegal must be replayed. 
they've mulled over what they should do in response to this ruling from FIFA. Jordan says they have considered appealing, writing to FIFA, employing legal counsel, and doing a number of other things as a means of reducing the stress of South Africans following this devastating news. He says one of the immediate measures is that SAFA will convene an emergency meeting committee today to discuss the way forward. And the president of the Nigeria Football Federation, Maamuju Melvin Pinnick, is in Zurich, Switzerland, for today's meeting of the organizing committee for FIFA's competitions. The organizing committee for FIFA competitions is one of the most influential committees in world football as it replaced the former multi-panels for FIFA's various competitions. On the agenda of the meeting are considerations and decisions with regards to updates on preparations by host nations for upcoming FIFA championships. Most importantly, for the present, the committee will take a final decision on the 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifying match between South Africa and Senegal, which was played in Polukwane in South Africa's Limpopo province on the 12th of November 2016 and has been mirrored in controversy ever since. And in rugby news, Springbok coach Alita Kutsia says it is time to focus on the upcoming Castle Lager Rugby Championship encounter against the All Blacks after finishing in a 23-all draw against Australia in Perth on Saturday. So everything. I think the big thing about next week is uh, our mindset was completely different this time. We didn't think about the All Black game while we still had to play the Wallabies. No, our focus was, like I said the other day, focus was on the Wallabies to get over this one. Of course, now it's uh, time to focus on the next one, which will be a hell of a battle. And uh, they still are, you know, the best side in world rugby, obviously. We've got a lot of respect like for both these teams, you know, we've been playing year in, year out, we come here, rugby championship, it's always a hard game, six points, four points difference, and, uh, you know, I'm just pleased that outside, uh, you know, Springboks are really growing, and uh, they're learning, and they're taking all learning, learning experiences on board, and hopefully, you know, it will help us a lot going there next week, similar weather conditions, who knows, so we had a bit of a taste with uh, wet weather conditions tonight. Kutsier says he is pleased at the strides his team has made this season and believes it comes down to the hard work and togetherness of the players. Yeah, I can just talk from a Springer point of view and uh, I'm really pleased about the effort and the hard work that the players are putting in and the way they work for each other on the field. And uh, if you look at the small things, which is hardly coachable, that effort and intensity is there. They're enjoying other and the team environment is very very healthy there's a lot of uh, competition in the squad so from a springer point of view we we're making huge strides in tennis news rafael nadal won his third u.s open and 16th grand slam title with a one-sided victory over south africa's kevin anderson in new york the world number one power to a 6-3, 6-3, 6-4 victory in yesterday's final at Flushing Meadows. Anderson says they started very well and he settled quickly during the match. We got off to a very long sort of start. There was a lot of grueling games. Um, I felt I, my nerves were quite settled considering it was a very new stage for me. You know, he was making it pretty tricky. He was, I thought he was defending very well and, you know, he was being attacking at the same time and he made me fight very hard for my first few service games. Um, and he was holding pretty easy, so I felt I was, even though it was even, he was maybe edging ahead a little bit, and you know, I just couldn't turn that tight. I mean, I had a very small opportunity at 15:30 in the first set, and you know, maybe if I could have just given myself a few more opportunities, you know, would have given myself a better, you know, uh, sh- uh, shot at winning that, uh, winning that match. 
Finally, Cycling News Team Dimension Data for Kubega finish off this year's tour of Britain in style as Edward Boisson Hagen powered to victory after a late attack. If anybody had thought that the final stage would be a sprint parade into Cardiff, they were quickly proven wrong. Countless attacks occurred in the opening kilometers and the peloton was strung out right from the beginning. After 30 kilometers of racing, the riders were all over the road with the pack split up into four different groups. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, African Union high-level panel on Libya meets in Congo. Headsmen kill at least 10 people in Nigeria's Plateau State and hundreds of women march in Burundi's capital, Bushubura. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagaza and Selina Dobong, technical producer Sviso Mashejo and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Or send a WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327 or SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Sunel featuring Soweto Something with a song titled Aganamad.